Uh, hey, before we begin our teaching time, uh, just in case you live under a rock this morning, there is an election this week. Did you know that? Uh, and so we've been instructed in the Word of God to pray uh, for our leaders and, and for our country. Let me just read to you real quick, 1 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life Godly and dignified in every way. So let's obey, all right? And spend some time right now praying uh, for our leaders and for the election this week, okay? <clears throat> our Father, as we come to your word this morning, we acknowledge again that you are our king and our sovereign. And we uh, love you. We acknowledge also that you are the one that chooses the time and place in which we will live and uh, accept from your hand as a gift this time and place, this cultural moment that you've placed us in. We trust, God, that you have uh, made it for us and made us, you will make us fit for this moment. God, we do give you thanks for everyone that serves us in civil government from the very, very highest levels at the federal level all the way to school boards and things like that. We give you thanks and we are grieved uh, by the rising tide of violence against elected leaders and against those who are appointed to serve us. So we gather to ask in your name, Father, uh, that you would protect our leaders and their families, that you would bring peace and unity to our nation. And God, in this, uh, this week's election, we pray that you would be at work to uh, bring peace and justice and righteousness uh, to our nation. Father, insofar as it lies with us, would you make the church a blessing to the nation and to our neighbors this week? We ask that you would uh, help us to understand and know the truth and to live in light of that but we need your help and our nation needs your help right now. Uh, so we ask for it in Jesus' name. We're looking for you this week. Everyone said, amen, amen. Well, today we are wrapping up our second teaching series in the life of Joseph. We've done a series called The Dreamer. Right now we're in a series called The Dungeon and coming next week a new series called the destiny. You see what we did there? The, uh, the, the dreamer, the dungeon, the destiny. There's a whole class in pastor school about how to start things with the same letter. And it, it worked on me. And so that $40,000 I paid for that class anyway. <clears throat> we, we're going to be continuing through the story of Joseph all the way until Christmas. Now, Christmas will be a, you know, its own thing, a standalone uh, time, but between now and then, we'll finish the story of Joseph. And just so you know what's coming in the new series, we're going to be talking about uh, drawing near to one another and forgiveness. We're going to be talking about what it will be like to see the face of God. We're going to be talking about what it will be like to come home to God. We're going to be talking about the coming redemption of all things through Jesus. So I just share that to say if you or someone you love or just someone you know uh, needs hope and perspective, heading into the, the, the holiday season, uh, I hope you'll invite them, and I hope that you'll join us as well. Uh, just a reminder, 
you can find uh, all of the resources for these teaching series on our FCC app. Basically, everything you want to know about FCC, you can find there. Uh, all, of our conver- all of our sermons get posted there. Our conversation guides for all the ministry that you're doing around the St. Croix Valley is posted there. Every once in a while, you know, we do a follow-up blog post or something. So you either get a 60-minute sermon or you get a 40-minute sermon and a blog post. Okay, those can be found there. Uh, But it's a one-stop resource for everything going on here. And if you really, really want to be in the know at Faith Community Church, uh, be sure that you're on Pastor Tim Porter's weekly email update. Okay, there's a little QR code on the screen behind me. You can take your phone out right now. If you, if you promise not to be Googling things during my sermon, you can take your phone out, snap that QR code, and uh, that'll, that'll get you on Pastor Tim Porter's weekly uh, email update, okay? It's a great, great way to stay informed with everything going on here. All right? Well, back to Joseph this week, this fall, we've been uh, ever, you know, I think since September, we've been looking at the life of Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis And what we've seen is that Joseph is the quintessential illustration of the doctrine of what's called the providence of God. That all things are being worked together by God for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so far in this series, we've seen Joseph experience that redemption. Uh, Joseph has begun to see, He, he doesn't even see the whole picture yet, But he's begun to see how God is taking up everything that's happened to him and all that he has suffered and God is making it work for his good. And this week we're going to see uh, how that works out in the lives of his brothers and particularly the life of a brother named Judah. I shared this last week but it's true again this week. What strikes me most is how different actual stories of redemption are from the way we think about religion. Religion for most people is uh, like God is a vending machine. You push the right buttons, you put in the right prayers, you do the, the right things and poof, out pops your redemption or salvation. That is not what we see in the Bible. And in these stories, that's not what we see. In fact, what we've seen is that Joseph deliberately hides himself or conceals himself from his brothers for a while to put them through a process uh, by which they come to grips with what they've done and their need to be changed. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 has been a really important anchor verse throughout the fall. And this is what Romans 8 28 says. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's a great summary of the life of Joseph and the doctrine of God's providence. But look at the next verse. This is Romans 8, 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. It is not God's purpose just to get you to guilt or to get you to fear or to get you to push the right buttons, say the right prayers, etc., etc. It is his purpose to make you daughters and sons, radically free, radically alive, and fully redeemed, looking like Jesus. That's the goal. So you, you don't have to wonder uh, what the purpose, what God's purpose in your history has been, what God's purpose in your suffering has been, your gifts, your mistakes, your victories, everything. He has let us know the point is to make us look like his son, Jesus. 
And that's what we're going to see happen with Joseph's brothers this week. We're going to be picking right up where we left off in Genesis chapter 42. That'll be on page 36 if you want to borrow a Bible from under the chairs in front of you. Now, we're going to cover three chapters of Genesis today, so we can't read all that. We're just going to like fly over and then touch down and then fly over and touch down and we're going to keep, keep moving. So if you could have a Bible or your phone or something in front of you, uh, it'll help you get less lost, uh, I think. So as you're finding that, just in case this is your very first time here, I've met a couple of people already today. This is your very first time. A special welcome to you. Uh, this is what's been going on. So a famine uh, has this whole part of the world, the Middle East, in its grip. And Joseph's 10 older brothers have gone down to Egypt to buy food. They left the youngest brother, Benjamin, at home because he's daddy's favorite. Uh, and their other younger brother, Joseph, whom they sold into slavery, unbeknownst to them, has risen to become prime minister of Egypt. Uh, and Joseph chooses to conceal himself for a time to bring the brothers through this process where they kind of have to relive the things they did to Joseph. And the purpose of that whole exercise is that they would get in touch with their guilt. Joseph's purpose in this is to arouse their consciences. And it works. But the goal, as I've already said, the goal is not guilt. Okay, it's, not, it's not nothing. When Joseph hears his brothers talking, confessing, what they did to him, he weeps, okay? So it's not nothing, but it isn't the goal either. And so Joseph chooses to remain hidden for a while because more needs to happen. And let's just pick up in Genesis 42, verse 23. And the verses are the little numbers on the pages, okay? It says this, The brothers did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away from them and wept. Then he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon, and bound him before their eyes. And then he manufactures this test of love. So he's sending nine brothers home to, to dad to bring the youngest, Benjamin, back. And Joseph says, I'll know if you come back with your little brother that you were telling the truth, that you are brothers and you're not spies, and I don't have to kill you. Now, we know that Joseph really wants to see his brother, but they don't know that. And in verse 25, then, he makes the crisis worse. Verse 25, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and then to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. You see, it would have been too easy for the brothers to go home, get Benjamin, and come back. So through Joseph's wisdom, God creates this situation where now they look guilty of theft on top of being accused of spying. So they face this choice. Tell me if this sounds familiar. They get to decide if they're going to let a brother rot in Egypt, but they get to keep the money and save their own necks. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, so he's, he's putting them in almost the same situation they were in 20 years earlier when they chose to cut Joseph loose and let him die. On the way home, it says then, one of the brothers, this is verse 28, one of the brothers discovers the money in his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what has God done to us? 
Now, this is why this matters, because this is the first time the brothers have talked about God. Up to this point, he has been off the radar screen. Now they're talking about God, and they are afraid. Their hearts fail them, it says. They trembled. And this is a part, just so you know, a part of what God is after in the midst of this crisis. For the first time, the brothers sense the hand of God upon them. Now, ironically, they think that God is punishing them when, in fact, they are at this moment experiencing more of the grace of God than maybe any other time in their lives. And that's usually how it goes. The guilt and the fear of God are actually the beginning of the freedom that we were made for. And if, you know, if you're, if you're new to the story of the Bible or you're just contemplating some of this for the first time, I understand that this is completely the opposite of what we're being told all the time. That guilt and fear are things to be avoided at all costs. And here I'm saying to you, guilt and fear are a gift from God that are the beginning of the path of freedom and joy and hope. The moment we are most afraid of God is the moment we are probably the safest. So just real quick before we move on, has that happened to you? I mean, is there a point in your life where you feared the Lord, like you began dealing seriously with God, he wasn't just a punchline and a joke to you? Has that happened for you? Okay? Now, in the verses that follow, the brothers arrive home and they report to dad what's happened. And we don't have time to read this whole thing, but I'll just summarize it for you this way. If you go home and read it uh, later this week, I'll summarize it this way. They strike me as a group of teenage boys who went on spring break, got into some trouble, and now they have to tell dad what happened. So as you read it, you're going to notice uh, a few things. First of all, they say nothing about their three days in jail. Must have slipped their minds. They don't mention Simeon being shackled and hauled away. They don't say anything about this moment they had of realization in verse 21 where they're like, this is because of what we did to Joseph. Okay, So they, I think they really were sad in verse 21. They're not ready to talk to dad about it. Uh, they don't mention that the governor of Egypt threatened to kill them. That must have slipped their minds as well. And actually, they kind of give the impression, if you read it, they talk about trading, like, you know, the governor of Egypt wants us to bring Benjamin back, and he's invited us to trade in Egypt. Uh, they, and they, they kind of make it sound like Simeon's uh, almost like a guest of honor, you know, in the country. And um, then in verse 35, uh, the, the wheels really come off, though. It says, verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, Every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. They did not realize how serious the situation was. Now they're really scared. Now dad sees it too. And Jacob goes into full blame shift self-pity mode. Look at verse 36. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin, and all this has come against me. It's you, you, you. There's no mention of his own role in creating this situation in the first place, and he blames them for everything, and he, he's just full of self-pity. Everything is against me. Wah, 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 wah. And then good old Reuben, 
uh, the oldest, adds to the farce. He says, verse 37, Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put Benjamin in my hands and I'll bring him. You know, it's just like, thank you. Wow, Reuben, thank you. So much for that, this noble offer, you know, of your own children uh, instead of yourself. The, what we wind up with at the end of chapters 42 here is, is a family that clearly still does not get it. Led by two men who clearly... Uh, don't get what's going on. But, and this is important, everybody, but God is at work. Okay, the, the seeds of some really good things are here. The seed of repentance is there. The seed of faith is there. There's a, 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 a new tenderness Toward dad, okay, so I, I, think they, I think they don't tell dad the whole truth, certainly to save their own necks, but I do think there's a desire not to hurt dad, and that, that's commendable, that's good. Uh, even in Reuben's ridiculous offer, this totally clueless offer that he makes, there's a seed of loyalty and of something good. I think they really are concerned for Simeon's welfare, and for the, for the first time, they, they're actually innocent, okay? We shouldn't ignore that. They, they actually didn't do the thing it looks like they've done. And so the crisis is having its intended effect. They're just putzes. Do you know what I mean? They're just putzes. Maybe for the first time in their lives, they fear God. They understand that they're guilty for what they've done. But they are in a process. And I think that is really good news. Okay, because some of us are also putzes, right? You don't need to raise your hand or anything. Some of us are putzes. Some of you are in love with a putz. You really shouldn't raise your hand now. Some of you are married to a putz. Some of you are raising putzes. <laughs> or you have friends. I saw a couple of parents look at each other. Uh, some of you are friends with a putz. And people are complicated, aren't they? We bring a lot of baggage to our relationships with one another. And there's a world of difference between a putz who is hard-hearted, bitter, and angry. Okay, Jesus calls them pigs and dogs in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, there is such a thing as a pig and a dog, and we should protect one another from those kinds of putzes, but there is another kind that is all bound up. They know something is wrong. They can see that they've done wrong. They, they really want to do right. They want to love you. They genuinely just are clueless, like Reuben and Jacob. Maybe that's you. Okay, maybe you're here this morning and you wish you knew how to do it different and you just can't. Or you live with someone and you can see them trying to figure it out. We want to fix each other now, right? We would like our putts to wake up tomorrow, not a putts. 
And yet what we see in scripture is Joseph allows these guys, God allows these guys to just stew for kind of a long time because there's some stuff that everybody's gotta work through. Now, to those of you that are a putz, a word to you, and we're gonna say it together. Are you ready? I want you to say, I am not entitled to stay a putz. Let's try it again because only about a third of you participated. I am not entitled to stay a putz. This is not an invitation. Oh, grace, 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 blessing, blessing, blessing. That, that, that's not the goal. God's purpose is that you look like Jesus who is not a putz and never has been a putz. But that is where God is taking you. The brothers know they're guilty. They sense God's hand at work in this crisis and it's a great start, but it is not the goal. And what is needed now is the same thing that we need every day and that is the gift of something called repentance. Everyone say repentance. Repentance is what is needed now. Now that's a super Christianese word and we're just going to slow down and take some time and define that. First of all, repentance is not a sense of being sorry. Okay, it's not just guilt. You can feel guilty and remain unrepentant. It isn't a sense of remorse because you've been caught and now your life is more difficult. It isn't a sudden flush of regret when your foolishness that you had tried to keep hidden is now exposed. This is my definition of repentance today. It's on the screen. Repentance is a radical, permanent, and continuing reversal and an acknowledgement that we cannot do this on our own. Let me say that again. Repentance is a radical, permanent, and continuing reversal and an acknowledgement that we cannot do this on our own. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 teaches about biblical repentance like, like this. He said, Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Wouldn't that be awesome? And that's the goal. Salvation without regret. And that's what I mean when I keep talking about God taking up everything that you've done and everything that's been done to you and forcing it to do good to you. That is redemption and it's a gift of, re of real repentance. So it's not just being sorry. It's not a sense that your life is not what you hoped it would be. Repentance is radical, permanent, continuing reversal. And you cannot do that on your own. Let's just take this one piece at a time, okay? Repentance is radical, meaning it goes to the root. Okay, too much of what we think is repentance is just trying to take better outward things and staple them on the tree of our life. That's not repentance. That's called faking it. It's not the worst thing in the world, but repentance is radical in that it goes straight to the root. It is a complete change of heart and mind. Repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, uh, and this was the substance of Jesus 
first sermon that we have in the Bible. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, you are heading this way. You need to stop. You need to turn around and follow me and not look back. Okay, so you've seen your guilt. You feel the hand of God upon your life. That's a great start. But you need to turn now and follow me. This is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's a gift from God. That's from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Out of a true sense of sin. Okay, so your, your conscience has been awakened to its guilt. Good. And apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. So we're aware of our guilt and then we see the cross of Jesus and we say, this is my only hope. But this is the radical part. Look at this. And with grief and hatred of his sin, he turns from it to God with full purpose and new obedience. And that's, that's the radical part. Repentance. This is how you know God is working repentance in your heart. You hate your sin. Hate it. The pronoun matters. You hate this guy's sin? Ever say no? You hate that lady's sin? No. You hate their sin? Those people out there? The sinner? You hate your sin. You loathe it. Because it is, you know it is killing you. And will eat you alive if you let it. Repentance is radical in, in that it also causes us to hate our own righteousness. So re repentance is radical because we hate our sin, but we also hate our righteousness. And this is where a lot of us get stuck. Uh, Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 3, we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in our own ability to change ourselves, to do better, no confidence in our own power. In fact, Paul says, it's garbage. Take every awesome thing about me, put it over here, light a match, walk away. Whoosh, it's garbage, he says. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my best work, everything that makes me awesome, everything I'm tempted to take pride in, I hate I loathe it. I pour contempt, the hymn says, on all my pride. This is the, it, your, your sin separates you from God, so we hate it. Your righteousness separates you from God too because you are tempted to trust in it. We, we minimize the cross and what it means and it separates us as well. And so, the, so you know God is giving you the gift of repentance when you see your best day and you say, what is this when compared with the cross of Jesus? It is nothing to me. And that is the beginning and the substance of the whole Christian life. And that's what we mean when we say it is permanent and continuing. Repentance does not mean that, the, that a Christian will not struggle with temptation and sin. It does not mean we will not experience relapses into foolishness. It does not mean that you are suddenly made perfect. All Christians everywhere slip back into foolishness. 
it is continuing in this sense that all of life for the Christian is repentance. All of life for the Christian is repentance. It's an acknowledgement. I cannot do what I am called to do. And I cannot be what I am called to be. The Christian is dependent on the grace of God every moment of every day. If you've been trained to believe that repentance is a one-time event that happened in a Bible camp or something when you were a kid and there was a really engaging speaker and you kind of got emotionally whipped up and you gave your life to Jesus, which is an awesome thing, but if you've been trained that that's what repentance is and then you need to get to the business of looking like Jesus, you might be stuck today and not understand why you're a putz. I'm a Christian, I gave my life to Jesus, and yet none of my relationships work. What is going on? It's because repentance is ongoing every day. It's the whole Christian life. There is no day when a Christian shouldn't wake up and say, God, you have made this day, you've made me for this day, and I cannot do what you've called me to do. And I need you today to come and fill me with your own presence, your own power, and your help. This is just, this is a silly example, okay? It's just a dumb example. It's just the one that happened this weekend, okay? So don't, this is not like the whole kit and caboodle. But uh, one of my favorite uh, verses in, in Scripture is 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul says to Timothy, the aim of our charge uh, that is the whole purpose of our ministry. The whole reason the church exists and all that. The, the aim of our charge is love, which issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Okay, so I'm preparing to lecture you all on this this morning. And uh, this is my weekend. Friday night, uh, my family and I went to go see Cinderella at the high school. Which you, kids, you did a phenomenal job. It was just amazing, amazing, amazing. I... Uh, don't love crowds in the best of times. And, you know, since we lost our son, crowds are just even harder. They're just, you know, you never know who you're going to run into and who knows what's going on and all, you know. Uh, so I'm there, Cinderella. I can feel, uh, you know, the desire to hide welling up within me. I just want to hide or I want to use people. You know, that's something that I'm prone to do. And I'm sitting Watching Cinderella, I know an intermission is coming up. The whole, the whole building is going to be emptied and you're going to be rubbing shoulders with a million people. And I, I'm, just, I'm just become aware, reflecting on what I'm talking to you about, that the aim of our charge is love. Not just to survive the next 25 minutes. Does that make sense? Some of us think that our, we're doing well, our spiritual lives, are, we're doing great because we didn't kill anyone this week. I just want to say that's the, the bar's a little low, okay? Or you're, you're, you're here thinking to yourself, we're doing well, my Christian life is intact because, well, she hasn't left me yet. Well, she, he hasn't left me yet. You know, I just want to suggest to you, that is not the point. God's purpose is that you and I look like his son, Jesus, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. How are you doing in that area? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And I am telling you now, you cannot do that. You cannot love. It can't be done. And so I find myself sitting watching Cinderella saying, this is what's coming. I'd, 
I want to walk in the power of the Spirit. I want to walk with my Father everywhere that I go. So I just say, God, I can't do this. And I'm asking you right now, not just to help me survive the next 25 minutes, but to actually love people. Come and or- just orchestrate the conversations I'm going to have and the people I run into. And that's called repentance. It's biblical repentance. To acknowledge, I cannot be what you've called me to, do, to be, but you have promised me everything that I need. One of the first scriptures I ever memorized as a college student was, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. It's one of my favorite. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. I say it not every day, but often because I am a putz. Now this story that we're reading in Genesis never actually uses the word repentance, but it it is here, and I say that because the brothers change. Let me show you what I mean in in the last 10 minutes that we have here together. We have to skip almost all of chapter 43 just for the sake of time. What I'd want you to notice if you go home and read this on your own this week is that Judah is the one who finally steps up in the family and begins to lead them in the path of repentance. He takes them down to Egypt. They bring Benjamin with them. It's it's a moment of tremendous faith. There's a great show of unity and loyalty there. And when they arrive in Egypt, they're invited to Joseph's palace and they're invited to have lunch. It's quite an honor to be invited into the, the prime minister's home for lunch, but the brothers are afraid. And if you look at verses 17 and 18, I I won't read them, but verses 17 and 18, you can just hear them saying, well, this is it. Here we go. We're going to go into this guy's house, and they're going to jump us and take all our stuff and throw us into slavery. And so they find the steward of the house, and they explain the situation. They say, look, this money, we we didn't take it. It was just in our sacks, and we brought it all back. See, it's all all here. Now, I do want to read the next part. Okay, so starting in verse 23, look at what, what the steward says this Verse 23, the steward replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. That's the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is just a really powerful word of welcome and reconciliation. Shalom. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph coming at noon for they heard they should eat bread there. You remember when they threw Joseph in a pit 20 years earlier? They all sat down and had lunch. You remember that? Okay, now we're gonna have lunch again. When Joseph, verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present they had with them and bowed, to him down, bowed down to him to the ground. It's another fulfillment of Joseph's dream. And Joseph inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and wept there. 
Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them hit by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before Joseph, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Why do I say that, I, that the brothers have changed? Because look, one of the brothers is shown favor and honor five times more than all the others, and they're happy. They're happy. How would this have gone 20 years or five years earlier? How would this go? They started conniving and scheming to bring Benjamin down. But for the first time, the brothers are looking like a family built to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. There's integrity, they're bonding, there's peace. This word shalom doesn't come through in the English, but it's, it's sprinkled throughout the story. And they're shining with love and loyalty toward one another. What a different lunch than the one they had 20 years earlier. And then one more test. We're going to close the whole series and and we'll share communion with this. Chapter 44, verse 1, Then Joseph commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. So we're going to do that again. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They'd gone only a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. And when the steward overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Look, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Verse 9, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. I don't recommend that, by the way. That's a little crazy, a little rash, but... Listen to the confidence that they have in each other right now. They're so confident that none of them would have done this. They bet their freedom and their lives on this. Verse 10, the steward said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you will be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. So they're eager to prove their innocence. And he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes. And every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. We should note, the steward gave them the opportunity to leave. But everyone hops on their donkey and heads back to the city. In verse 14, when Judah and his brothers, see he's leading the family now. When they came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this you've done? Don't you know a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. 
Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup was found. But Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my, my servant. As for the rest of you, go up in peace to your father. Do you see what he's doing? All you have to do is cut this uppity, overrated little brother out. And you get to move on with the rest. Shalom. Go up in shalom to your father. Just leave him here. What follows is the longest speech in the whole book of Genesis. It belongs to Judah. And he speaks passionately. He speaks persuasively. We don't have time to read it. But just think, 20 years ago, they were so angry and so indifferent toward their father and so jealous of their brother that they sold him into slavery, believing he would die. And now Judah begs for his father's well-being. And in verses 33 and 34, this is how the speech ends. Now, therefore, please let me, Judah, remain instead of the boy as a slave to my Lord and slave me. Let the boy go back with his brothers, for how could I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the first time in the Bible that one man offers his life in the place of another. They have, the brothers have, and especially Judah, have learned the lesson. And he becomes a picture of the Messiah that will come from his own family line. And not only, if you read Judah's whole, and we skipped all kinds of stuff in Judah's past, he was a bad dude. Not only has he been redeemed, but his past has been redeemed, and he becomes a picture of what redemption will cost. One brother will have to lay his life down for the sake of all the others. There is a reason that Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. The aim of our charge is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You cannot do that on your own. You must repent. You must be changed by the grace of God. And every day, we need repentance. Every day, we need God's grace to be and to do what God has called us to do. Let's pray as we get ready for communion together this morning. I just want to give you a minute before we go to the Lord's uh, Supper to repent, to take time right now and to acknowledge that you need the grace of God in your life. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, 
he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>